Hi everyone, today I have Helen Croft, Head of Underwriting Strategy at AIG with me. Hi Helen. Hi Catherine. We're going to be talking about underwriting in 2021, the things that we are, uh, well basically what things are looking like for the coming year and I think some listeners would really, really love to hear a really clear and trusted view about coronavirus and, and kind of what's going on in the world. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So Helen, how are you doing? Before we start to really get into the heavy sort of like side of things, how are you? How's uh, lockdown treating you? I think we should probably do a bit of a disclaimer at first here as well as that we both have young children, we're both homeschooling. It's very, very likely at some point that there's going to be some kind of a shriek or some kind of interruption at some <laughs> point from a child, but uh, but how are things going? Yes, I'm good. So it's, it's Monday morning, so I'm bracing myself for another week of, of homeschooling. Uh, so if you ask me on Friday afternoon, you might get a, a different answer. But right now, I'm, I'm good. I'm raring to go. How, how are you finding it? I, I was going to say, it's so good that you get to the end of Friday. I've been needing to ask <laughs> I'm thinking about two o'clock today. Um, it's, it's tough, but, you know, I, th- I think it's one of those things that I was saying to someone the other day. I give myself every now and then, I'll give myself like a half hour or an hour to think, you know what, this really sucks. And this is really outside my normal. I'm not meant to be... Um, so like full-time worker, mum and teacher, all in one go at the same time, all day for five days in a row. Um, but then after I've done that, I kind of think, you know, I go back to start thinking that positives. So I've really got into that thing of like, you know, focusing upon the positives you have, you know, so we've got, we're safe at home, you know, got, we've got heating, we've got, you know, food um, and we are able to still work. And, you know, the kids are still able to do, um, do work for the school. They just, my eldest who's nine is it's quite self-sufficient at doing it, though I do have to check his work to make sure he's actually done it to a quality I'm happy with. And I know that sounds really harsh and I know I've turned into my mum, but <laughs> he's, he's clever and he tries to get away with things. But my six-year-old, obviously there's so much interaction that you have to do with them to sort yeah. of, they are very, I mean, he's very, very good with things like the Chromebooks and things, but still there is so much interaction and getting them to do the next sort of like thing and getting them to understand definitely what's going on. But uh, it's intense, but we get through it we get through it don't we indeed yeah and I think the um, the kids seem to be taking it all in their stride anyway don't they and yeah. enjoying being at, at home and and playing and and things absolutely so. I think you know the, I think the one that's finding it good yeah, I, th- I think the one that finds the hardest is my nine-year-old because he's so aware of not seeing his friends my, my six-year-old yeah. is just kind of like la 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 and just bouncing about the the rooms quite happy whereas my nine-year-old really really feels it so I just I can't wait for them to be all be able to to be together again and just just have a good play you know and just I yeah. don't know let's get them out in a muddy field somewhere with a football and just let them just go crazy for a little bit they'll enjoy it um oh, so absolutely. <laughs> absolutely so Helen um we're clearly going to be chatting quite a bit about COVID today I don't think there's anybody who's obviously not heard of it, not being affected by it in some way or other, either they're not as themselves or in family, friends, or even people that they possibly know through work. Possibly even, obviously, a lot of people we speak to advisors and people who are listening, you know, people who've got clients that have possibly been affected by this. I know I, I certainly have done. Um, I think we're really good, sort of like if we can start off to chat about what it's like for an insurer and an underwriter, especially when things all happened last March, because I'm guessing it was quite a shock. I know that you know, from an advisor point of view, there was this kind of worry that um, we weren't hearing anything and, you know, sort of um, we weren't sure what was happening with um, underwriting, if cases were still going to go ahead. Um, you know, obviously completely understood that this was a massive thing that everyone was having to react to. Um, but I think sometimes, obviously, from an advisor side of thing, we see it from 
potentially one perspective, but a really good idea to have that in-depth view of an underwriter as to, to what it was actually like at that time. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it was it was a really challenging time and it remains a, a challenging time as a, a lot of the underwriting processes and the philosophies that we have have had to be reviewed and changed as situations have changed. So, um, I mean, as, as you know, the... Um, the situation with the uh, the pandemic has evolved and, and moved on and we need to make sure that uh, we're moving on with it and that we're having a controlled and proportionate response uh, yeah. that adapts as the situation adapts. I think one of the biggest challenges with that is that as underwriters we're used to having a lot of data so we're used to having um guidance and rules that are based on um you know years worth of, of data and that just wasn't available for um yeah. for covid so things were becoming available uh, as we moved through the pandemic um and and we had to kind of adapt with that Absolutely. And even to this day things are still changing aren't they i mean last week we had the um the announcement from nicola sturgeon um that the rules in Scotland would tighten and yeah. you know immediately um, insurers and medical screenings providers are having to work together then to understand well, what does that mean for our face-to-face screenings um, how do we adapt to that and how do we um, kind of reflect that in our processes so that people can still get the insurance that they need as well so, so yeah there's a, a lot of um, monitoring and reacting and making sure that we're uh, we're doing what we need to do to um kind of keep things keep things going i imagine as well just going back to a couple of bits there so like you, you were saying about the data you know obviously i appreciate obviously i'm assuming it's, it's a big thing between the underwriters and the actuaries working upon I imagine it's probably decades worth of data usually, you know, if it was something like cancers and heart attacks, you know, there's so many years worth of data to to look for the trends and to look for the, those generic patterns that you would see, the the, the common uh, sort of themes that run through in regards to, you know, if somebody is this age and they've had a heart attack, well, this is the likely outcome. And, and I imagine that's probably hundreds of thousands of people probably that there would usually be data for that all of a sudden, you know, there was this risk that they're just, I'd say those at first handfuls, but it was very clear that it was going to be a, a very, very significant thing that was happening. Yeah, um, absolutely. So you'd normally have data uh, from, from the medical community on um, your science and research, but then there'd all, also be uh, data from the insured population from um, you know, be insurers who've got a, a bigger book of, of business and even from from insurers where they've got a, a big book of business as well and can um look at our own claim statistics or um you know other other data sources that that we have to to see what's happening um in the the group of people that that we insure so um just obviously none of that was available um for covid so it's uh you're using the information that's becoming available at the time and um and kind of making adjustments to what we're doing to to reflect the risks as we became aware of them so it became mm. quite apparent quite quickly didn't it that the um mm. the risks were focused in certain areas which were older lives and people with with significant underlying health conditions so uh, underwriting philosophies had to reflect that so yeah. we weren't taking a you know broad brush approach to everybody and and restricting um you know, the, the access to insurance um to areas where the risks weren't being presented yeah. and I think that that's a tough balance and um, that 
the underwriters almost in the middle of the situation. So looking to make sure that we can keep the doors open, we can make sure people can still get insurance, but also we've got to have an eye on um, you know, making sure that the insurance industry is sustainable so that we can support all the, the millions of customers who've already got insurance yeah. um, and make sure that we can still provide them the, the support that um, you know they've they've signed up to so it's this kind of tough balance isn't it absolutely I think that was something that's that's really important to focus on is the fact that you know whilst you know sometimes it can seem as, as an advisor it you know obviously it can seem frustrating not at the insurers but you know with the situation it'd be frustrating because you know you've got people who maybe want insurance and they maybe can't get it down the routes you used to be able to get to yeah. uh, no matter what you have to remember that the insurer is a business and it is a business of risk and you've made promises to millions of people and you need to be able to make sure that if there's suddenly mass claims coming through that you honor those obviously yeah. those people who've been paying into the insurances for so many years and and there was quite a flood obviously especially at the beginning of people wanting well people were coming wanting income protection insurance but they were actually asking for an employment cover and um and it was interesting to see that but then obviously as, as well as an advisor it was really horrible because obviously those policies were, were took away from new business and stopped being on offer and it, it, it was hard because you know it's you know, I think we're all middle people in different ways. You know, an advisor, we're middle people to the insurers and the um, and uh, the public. And obviously, as you were saying, you're yeah. kind of like a middle person as well because you you want to still be insuring people, but you also then have to make sure that you still remain financially viable as an insurer. Yeah. It was quite interesting as well when you said about like the medical screenings and the GP evidence, because that's been one that's been really strange, I think, from an advised perspective. And I'm sure it has been as well from an insurer side of things. Um, but with the um, with GPs, we, we went from a, a typical GP report, we would say on average for, for us is probably about four to six weeks to return. Um, now, we, we ended up having it where some GPs just said, we're not doing GP reports at all. And obviously, that was a very difficult conversation to have with a, a client to say, well, I'm sorry, but your GP is just not going to do this um, yeah. but then we had other ones that were returning them within a week saying well we're not seeing anybody so I can yeah we can do this you know really quickly and uh, and it was kind of like a really really weird dynamic because it was all just again like again we're having to adapt and change constantly but I think just like moving on to the next bit I think that most people understand that the the risk that coronavirus presents but I think, again, we've all seen that there's still some debate over it. I was speaking to somebody uh, the other week, actually, and they were just like, said to me, they're like, I'm not sure if it's real. And I was just like, well, actually, this person who works here has passed away last week because of it. And we've lost some family members because of it. So it is real. And um and I, I, I mean, I'm really surprised that some people still don't think it's real. The whole debate about whether or not to wear masks or not is a completely different area. Um, but can you give us a, a bit more insight as to what coronavirus is and what does make it such a worry? Yeah, of course. Um, and this is part of the challenge, isn't it? That it's it's a new virus. So we're still learning a lot about it. We're still understanding some of the mechanisms that make one person have um, a, a very mild illness um, and somebody else have a, a, a severe illness or a, you know, a life limiting illness. So um, there's research going on at the minute. And one area that they're looking at is, is genetics and whether there's certain genes that are playing a part in that and um, uh, can making some people more predisposed to having um, a, a more severe reaction. Um, where we understand that there are risk factors that that make someone more predisposed to having a, a severe reaction like obesity or higher age or certain medical conditions and um, there's still research going on to understand exactly what's driving that um, 
So a good example of that is with obesity. So we know that people who are overweight and obese have um, different metabolic reactions um, to people who aren't overweight or obese. And we know that um, they can have higher levels of inflammation um, and that they can have different immune responses to things. Um, but it's not understood exactly which of those elements is, is the thing that's making uh, people um, have this kind of more um, serious risk from from COVID in that group. Um, so I think there's there's an understanding of what the risk factors are, and there's an understanding of some things that might be causing that. But but a lot of the research is still underway to to fully understand the mechanics, and that's part of the challenge, right? When we're when we're looking at, um, at underwriting the risks as well. Can I just quickly pop in there with that? Because this is part of obviously lack of knowledge on my part and um, I'm probably going to sound very, very silly to a lot of underwriters here who are listening. But when you say that about how it's like a bit to do with the, like the metabolic rate or the metabolism. Now, when I hear metabolism, I automatically think of food and the processing of food. So how does the sort of like the differences in the metabolism, it, are we talking sort of like it's something to do with I don't even know how to link that in a sense to COVID in a sense, you know, it, does it affect the immune system, like the metabolism and stuff? I'm, I'm, I'm getting myself yeah, lost so, in it. <laughs> so, it um, so they think it's around how um, their insulin response, basically. So we, we okay. know diabetes is a, is a risk factor as well. Um, and with people who are overweight or, or, or obese, um, their metabolism can mean that they have uh, a different response in terms of generating insulin so okay. um, that can impact how they how they they respond to COVID but I'd say the, the actual mechanisms of that aren't really fully understood um okay. just that there is this this strong link between uh being overweight and obese and, and having a severe COVID reaction no that's interesting thank you I didn't realize I didn't even think about insulin as, as an aspect of that so that was really good thank you sorry and I've interrupted you there if you want to <laughs> carry no, on <laughs> I think one of the so one of the other things that's um, a big challenge is that we have this proportion of asymptomatic people. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so I was reading something in the BMJ last week where um, they were talking about potentially one in five people who have COVID are asymptomatic, which is looking at the numbers of people who are being diagnosed at the minute yeah. is a huge amount of people who are you know they've got it and they don't know and and those people are spreading it without realizing it and yeah. that's you know that's a big challenge because how do you how do you manage that uh, and how you manage that is unfortunately yeah. through through the lockdowns that we we find ourselves in now yeah. um where you know we don't mix with other people as much so so that's a, a big challenge in terms of how it's spreading um yeah. and the other kind of pertinent thing that's um, really relevant to what's happening in the, the news at the moment is the, the mutations. So yes. when viruses spread, they um, they mutate, all viruses mutate. Mm. Um, but the more it spreads, the more propensity there is for it to mutate. So um, what that's what we're seeing now is that, you know, there's been lots of mutations that have happened and it hasn't impacted anything. But now we're starting to see mutations which are changing the behaviours of the virus. So um, you know, the mutation we had in the UK that made it more transmissible. And the was that the Kent that, one? Was that the Kent? Yes. That, yeah. Yeah. There was the Kent one. And then there was a, a you know, similar one in South Africa, which which did a you know similar thing. Okay. It was much more easy to, to transmit. And the more it spreads the more you know, likely that, that a mutation would happen that that could yeah. be significant. And um, obviously that's a concern when we're at this, the crux of getting these vaccines rolled out yeah. because it could impact how 
the vaccine works if there was to be a, um, a mutation which impacted how the, the vaccine works versus how that particular strain of the virus is working. So generally how the, the vaccines work um, is, so the virus attaches to human cells um, through a thing called the spike protein and the vaccine almost tricks your body into um, having a response which um, helps you respond to that spike protein if it if it becomes present in your body so if there's a mutation to the virus which changes that spike protein then it will it would mean that potentially that if that response that the the vaccines are generating wouldn't work um, in the same way um, against that strain of the virus so we've been lucky so far that, that that hasn't been the case and and of course they'll be able to generate more vaccines you know they've developed mm. these vaccines in in record speed and that I'm sure there's lots of work they can use from what's gone on so far to to develop more vaccines at a pace but it it changes the changes the game doesn't it if if we um, we don't have that um, situation anymore so so that's a topical one with with what's happening uh, with the new strains absolutely so I mean for, for my obviously very limited understanding of it in many ways so we had obviously COVID-19 there was then a mutation in Kent there's a mutation in South Africa and there's one just being identified in Brazil, Brazil. so yeah all of those are in a sense kind of interdependent like the mutation in Kent is not the same as the mutation in South Africa yeah. they're all kind of independent of each other okay then yeah. And I, th- I think if I'm right as well from the vaccine, just to sorry, clarify, because I think there's been some confusion over times with it um, when I've heard people talking about it. From my knowledge, and again, I, I, again, very limited knowledge, and um, the vaccine isn't going to stop people getting it. It just, as far as I'm aware, it's just going to stop, hopefully stop you from having the really bad side of it. Is, yeah. is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So, um and this is my uh, kind of stock response to everything, isn't it? So I mean, they're, they're still doing research and they aren't 100% sure. But but yeah, it's um, the intention is that it would basically impact your response to the virus. So um, it would mean that people weren't having serious and, and life-threatening responses, but they may still be able to pass the virus on to other people, although they're not 100% sure on, on that at the moment. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I, th- I was going to say, just from what you were saying there as well, I think it's absolutely incredible what the scientists and the medical community have been able to do. And and the fact that we I are... The, in that period of time. I know. And the vaccine, the numbers, are, are in, they're incredible. because they're like way, way above target, aren't they? And I like the fact as well that some of them are just... I've seen people on Twitter and they're just like, we had some spare vaccines at the end of the day. So we just started ringing people up and just saying, yeah, come for one. And you know, it's just like, we're not wasting anything. I thought... I'm really glad there's that kind of common sense amongst it all as well, you know, just sort of like to just go, right, we've got some spare, everyone for today is done. Let's just get whoever we can in and let's just get everyone as vaccinated as soon as possible. I think it's brilliant. Oh, the medical profession are amazing, aren't they? To be yeah. dealing with what they're dealing with in terms of not just the COVID response, but then the strain yeah. on the NHS as well, generally that that's creating. To then also take on the, the vaccine programme and yeah. to be, you know, delivering that in such a well-organized way is just yeah they're phenomenal hats off hats off to to all of those people absolutely something we haven't touched upon that I was just wondering if we could quickly touch on is long COVID now I've got um, a few people that I know who've had long COVID um, and I'm not sure I mean for them it almost it almost kind of seemed as if it was presenting itself as kind of like chronic fatigue syndrome Um, I don't know is, is that kind of what would be is, is that kind of like a usual version of the long COVID or is there like other kind of things that are presenting themselves? And, and possibly if you can just explain what that is kind of showing itself at, at the moment. 
Yeah, so it is um, it is showing itself as a kind of post-viral fatigue um, type symptoms, but the symptoms can be really wide and varying. So respiratory symptoms like shortness of breath and um, fatigue, neurological symptoms, headaches, and, and the severity of those symptoms can vary as well. And mm-hmm. so something that's really interesting with long COVID is that it's not just impacting people that have had severe COVID and um, it can impact people who have had um, a, a reasonably mild episode of COVID oh, right. and, and that makes it hard to understand who um, you know, who is going to be susceptible to that and you know, for individuals ourselves you know if we're to get the virus that's a difficult thing and also from an underwriting perspective that's a, a difficult thing as well so um, it does seem to be affecting women more than men oh, right. um, and the mechanics of that again aren't known um but but yeah it's uh certainly one of the longer term risks that um that we need to be looking at in in underwriting and how do we how do we you know understand who is um who is likely to be impacted by that what are the long-term risks of that um and then how do we reflect that in, in our underwriting approaches as well um so yeah it's a very topical one yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, looking forward then, let's look at this year coming up. Hopefully it's going to be a much, much better year than 2020. There's going to be a lot of advisors listening and they're going to be sort of wondering when things might start getting back to normal underwriting-wise. I'm sure that that is not going to be an easy answer, um, especially as we have new strains popping up. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, we're at a stage where, you know, sorry, the amount of people who are being, is it the amount of people being diagnosed with it is possibly starting to decrease a bit but then the hospital admissions yeah. are increasing it's 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 all still very much up in the air but what would you what what are your thoughts for the year to come yeah I'm, I'm feeling positive you know I know we're in a difficult position right now see we're in we're in lockdown the numbers are not great um but we are starting to see the impact of the lockdown with with some of the diagnosis numbers coming down and the vaccine program is really the thing that's the the light at the end of the tunnel for all of us isn't it so it's being rolled out at a pace like we've already spoken about and although the fact that people now need to wait 12 weeks between their their two doses um, and they need to have two doses to have that that kind of full level of, of protection and um, does elongate the timelines a bit um between where we uh we might be able to to start changing things underwriting wise um you know when you look at the numbers from the the government in terms of their estimations of how many people are going to have the vaccines and by what point they're talking about all of the very highest risk people having had the vaccine by mid-february everybody over 50 having had the vaccine by mid-march yeah. And the rest of us haven't had the vaccine by September. So um, the risk changes significantly once those higher risk people have uh, yeah. have had their vaccines. Um, so I really don't think it's unreasonable to be expecting things to to be starting to change in Q2. Um, yeah. So so I know that probably still feels like quite a long time away. But but also, you know, we do have this. We have the light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling optimistic that that things will uh you know, start to to change by that point in time. I think one thing I would say is that in the same way that you know, hospitals aren't going to go from having full COVID wards to having no people in them, um, I suspect it won't be the case that underwriting philosophies go from being what they are now to immediately back to what they were pre-COVID. I think there'll be some kind of stepping uh, in there. And, and obviously, we don't know what that looks like just yet. But yeah, I'd expect there to be uh, some kind of 
stepped approach, but that yeah, Q2 would be uh, a reasonable time to be expecting things to, to change. Oh, that sounds brilliant. I think we'll all have our fingers crossed, but obviously we won't hold you to that, Helen. Don't hold um, me to that, yeah. <laughs> let's just wait and see what happens with everything. We just, we never know at this moment, do we? I don't think there's much that can shock us uh, going forward this year. It kind of feels like there's just lots of things happening that in any kind of usual time period, we'd all be like absolutely either mortified <laughs> or completely shocked and we wouldn't stop talking about it for weeks because it would just be such a shock. And then because of this past year it's just kind of like yeah that's just well, it's just 2020 isn't it so anything could have happened yeah. and anything you know, goes. <laughs> yeah aliens could have landed and we just be like well it's 2020 it was going to happen this year wasn't it <laughs> and obviously we've spoken a lot there about COVID so thank you so much for going through that and obviously um, obviously helping me understand it more and I hope helping our listeners understand it too so what do you think roughly so it, you know if we, if we ignore COVID for a little bit what do you think we're going to be seeing in underwriting in 2021 what sort of like your thought of just general how I mean obviously say we know we talked about the Q2 thing but just generally what's what's your thought was what's going to happen yeah I think it'll be a really big year for underwriting again um, uh, you know, obviously Covid will continue to be a big focus and part of that will be underwriters looking at what's gone on in 2020 and how can we learn from some of that as well so uh, with evidence gathering for example uh, where there's been a necessity to use customer supplied evidence well what can we learn from that to put into normal practice to to make it easier for people where we need medical evidence so I think there'll be a lot of reflection and learning on what's gone before because we we need to like you were saying at the start of call we need to take the positives right we need to learn yeah. and and take things where we can and, and that will be a positive that will, will come from this situation with evidence gathering as well I think there'll be a big focus on electronic evidence gathering so partly because of of covid and it it being easier for gp surgeries to um and quicker for gp surgeries to complete the electronic reports and and partly because that's the industry it's the direction the industry has been trying to go in anyway and i feel there's a momentum building with the abi and the pdg wanting to get involved in uh, you know this kind of shared goal of of how do we increase yeah. electronic report uptake so i think there'll be good progress made on that with us all being behind it um so some industry collaboration there Absolutely. Um, i think what's interesting about that as well is that's something obviously we really welcome because you know we have so many instances and i'm sure we can't be the only firm obviously but we often do see the the gp reports um, or medical records for clients yeah and um we find it, it it's not a criticism at all of of the nhs or anything I'm, i would never ever do that because i'm I'm here because of the NHS, you know, they're, they're absolutely amazing. But the the amount of errors that are in these reports is incredible. You know, it could just be, you know, tucked away somewhere that somebody's, you know, being diagnosed with something and, it, and it's just an error in the document that, you know, they've never had that condition, you know, because you speak to people yeah. and you say, well, you never told me that you had this and they go, well, I've never had this. What's, you know, and then they have to challenge it and get it all changed um, and get like letters correction for it. And I think, we need to try and make it easier for people to be able to see and also data protection wise or the, the laws that have come in for people to be able to see what's being recorded about them. Because another thing that kind of worries me as well is that, you know, with with all the cases of people that go straight through online as well, without any kind of advice or any kind of medical reports, whilst that's brilliant. Again, I kind of think, well, could there be something in those medical reports 
that's in there inaccurately that actually when a claim comes around, th there could be quite a big issue um, because they've been unaware of it. But um, but yeah, so that's completely different. I've just uh, I've got gone off on a complete side uh, project there. Um, you are right though, <laughs> like that. And there's definitely a long, you know, there's a long game there, isn't there? Yeah. With um, with the NHS digitisation, once we've got, um, once it's you know accurate, and also we've got a really quick and easy mechanism for getting hold of customers information electronically then you can do that at a much larger scale and then yes. that does give you this claims protection as such that you've already you've already checked stuff out at underwriting stage so it's Absolutely. much easier than at, at claim stage um which is good for all of us you know it's good for from an underwriting perspective it helps us with our application form and making sure that um, we're asking the right questions in the right way and um, it's good yeah. for you as distributors because you can you know, understand how to position things with customers to get those disclosures and then it's really good for the customer because it gives them some reassurance as well that uh, yeah. you know we've already checked that that stuff out and we're happy that that everything's matched up so so yeah there's there's a definite there's a good long game there for sure uh, we've just got to get to a point where the technology is there and the gp surgeries are able to and happy to um kind of complete reports in of in course. an electronic way yeah definitely and is there anything else sort of that you're thinking for for the next year that you'll be focusing on yeah i think the other big thing that we'll see um will be the work on mental health with a kind of result of the so everyone's kind of signing up to the ABI mental health standards and that will involve you know, insurers making changes to, to their processes and to their underwriting and um, I think we'll see some really positive changes but also positive conversations so just a yeah. lot more openness and transparency around that because that can be one of the blockers right that it's yeah. just not clear what's going on behind the scenes sometimes so yeah, specifically in relation to mental health but also more generally I think we'll see more of that transparency and um, that we're already starting to see from from underwriting across the industry. Absolutely and I think you know so I'm sure you're aware I'm, I'll be very very happy to see um see discussions about mental health happening because one of the things I've always said and even before 2020 um is is that thing of like if, if you ask somebody have you ever felt anxious or stressed you know I, I can't imagine anyone can can really say no to that you know I, I think yeah. we've all you know it depends upon the level of anxiety and stress you know we all can have that you know when you go for your driver's test you're probably a little bit anxious when you go for your GCSEs you're probably a little bit anxious so I find it hard to sort of have a yes or no question and I think after 2020 I, I I could be wrong but I doubt that nobody has felt at some point a bit unsettled in this last year whether or not that's physically or mentally you know I, I think it would be it would be un I think it'd be quite unusual not to have I think it's a very natural and healthy response sometimes to feel a little anxious and a little stressed so but I think as, as we always say it's um it comes down to them potentially how you are able to process that and um, and focus that going forward? Yeah, you're right. The pandemic, the pandemic brings that into focus. It's it's been a long-standing conversation, but the pandemic really brings that into focus because insurers do need to be able to differentiate between what is a normal response to this incredibly bizarre situation we all find yeah. ourselves in versus what is a diagnosable medical condition um, that you know, has a different risk associated with it yeah. so um yeah that, that'll certainly be an area of focus for insurers to have a better understanding of that and apply appropriate philosophies in in those two distinct camps 
Absolutely. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining me, Helen, and thank you everybody for listening. Um, and I say, you know, really, really helped me to understand uh, COVID a bit more. So, so thank you. Um, I'm going to be back in about two weeks' time. I'm going to be chatting with Matt Ran, and quite, um, quite well actually. We've just segued straight into this. We're going to be chatting about mental health and underwriting. So, um, so that's quite good that we just timed that up perfectly. <laughs> mentioning those. Um, if you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please do drop me a message on social media or visit the website www www.practical-protection.co.uk and don't forget that you've listened to this as part of your work you can claim a cpd certificate on the website too thank you so much for joining me helen thanks catherine bye